men. Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, find your way to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Uh, that said, I'm not going to be expositing the book of Genesis this morning. I'm, I'm going to be taking us through Scripture, largely will be in Genesis and later in Galatians, uh, to offer a theological uh, sermon uh, to, to help you to understand a particular doctrine. Now, last week I began our Advent sermon series called The Conceiving of Christmas, which is aimed to explore the aforementioned particular doctrine of the virgin conception of the Christ child that we celebrate at Christmas. And so in this sermon series, I'm not pedagogically sort of moving as normally, like in terms of exposition, where you open your Bibles and we go verse by verse, and we're showing all the context in a particular section. We're going to be looking at a big bird's eye view of Scripture so that we can systematically understand this doctrine that we celebrate of the Advent, the incarnation of the Eternal Son who was conceived of, of the historic Virgin Mary. Why is that doctrine import, important to us? Well, that's what this series seeks to unpack. Now, last week in our first installment of the series, we explored this doctrine, the way that it comes to us in Scripture. And it comes to us in Scripture by way of story, which is why we have to bird's eye view the thing, because the Bible, though it's one book, it has 66 books, and together uh, this canon is telling a story. And so we have to we have to move fast and move systematically to, to unpack this story. So the doctrine of the virgin conception comes to us in Scripture through story. And last week, in the first message of our Advent series, we reflected on the power of storytelling in culture and, and story in general, how powerful it is anthropologically for humans. Uh, we looked at that last week, and then we looked at the story itself that the Bible is telling, which is a story of redemption. And it is this story where we meet a virgin who gives birth to a son who becomes our redeemer. This story of redemption in Scripture begins long before the coming of the redeemer, the Christ child. In fact, it begins with the beginning, with God and, and creation. And that's why I asked you to go to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, which is the origins account of Scripture and of reality. The opening chapter of the Scripture, the book of Genesis, these opening chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, really set the stage for the biblical drama that is unfolding in human history. It begins with creation. It begins with the creation of the cosmos, the creation of the earth, and God's creating of humanity and placing humanity in the earth. In fact, in, in paradise. In paradise. So the story begins with paradise and our parents the, the parents of humanity, Adam and Eve. Now that said, when we talk about Adam and Eve, many skeptics, uh, they, they, they step back, oh, 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 Adam and Eve, really? You believe in Adam and Eve? Well, you know, that's, that's, that, that just goes to show the dichotomy between science and, and religion. That's crazy you believe in Adam and Eve. How can you believe in something as ridiculous as Adam and Eve? Maybe you've heard objections like this. Well, we can't get started with the story because, uh, you know, the story begins with Adam and Eve. We can't get started because the skeptic's going to want to stop you right there and claim that that's ridiculous to believe in Adam and Eve. Now, the thing is that when secular science... Uh, uh, you know, posit these sorts of things, or, or uneducated skeptics want to posit these sorts of things, what they're failing to see is that they themselves are also telling a story. 
we're all storytelling. We're, we're, we're storytelling creatures. We're, that, that's basic to humanity, as we saw last week. So when secular science tells its story of humanity, uh, the, the thing that, to keep in mind when the skeptic comes is to point out, hey, you know that like in secular science, their story actually begins with a single man and a single woman too. You know that, right? So why are you acting all weird right now? Because science actually begins with a man and a woman too. That's how the story begins for humanity. Quoting an educated bioengineer and science journalist who, to my knowledge, is not one of us, I quote, the Y chromosome is passed down identically from father to son, so mutations or point changes in the male sex chromosomes can trace the male line back to the father of all humans. By contrast, DNA from the mitochondria, the energy powerhouse of the cell, is carried inside of the egg, so only women pass it on to their children. The DNA hidden inside of the mitochondria, therefore, can reveal the matrilineal lineage to an ancient Eve. It begins with a man and a woman. Science story begins, the story of humanity, according to science. Uh, mind you, science now doesn't believe in male and female, so it's getting, it's getting really hard to navigate this. I'm like, whoa, what's going on? I, I saw a clip this week of uh, like a trans hockey player just smash, you know, and you're going, this is getting out of hand. Anyway, so it's worth noting, though, i gotta, I got to watch myself here. It's worth noting that... Uh, in science, specifically in the field of human genetics, scientists speak of, and I quote, mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam. Mitochondrial Eve is said to be the matrilineal common ancestor of all living humans. All living humans descend in an unbroken line from one woman. And via Y-chromosomal Adam, all living humans are patrilineally descended. Now, of course, the story of secular science differs with sacred scripture. Uh, um, and, and secular science is, of course, limited by its discipline, uh, uh, which is dominated today by those who have managed to hoodwink the public into believing science and faith are at odds. So when we begin to tell our story about a man and a woman in the book of Genesis, uh, what I'm equipping you to see here is don't be bullied into stopping the story. You keep going. You've got the science to back it up. And more importantly, you have the revelation of God. The fact of the matter is that our study of science also comes from faith. So this false dichotomy is just that it's false. Uh, believers of, of this book are responsible for the discipline of science. Um, for example, notes apologist Tim Barnett, check out the facts. Francis Bacon, the guy who developed the scientific method, he was a Christian. Uh, uh, Kepler, you know, the brilliant scientist who discovered the laws of planetary motion, a committed Christian. Galileo, the scientist who convinced the world that the sun is the center of the solar system and not the earth, a Bible-believing Christian. Robert Boyle, he founded modern chemistry. Yep, also a Christian. Uh, Gregor Mendel, he monkeyed around with pea plants and uh, actually founded genetics as we know it. Yeah, yeah, he was a monk for goodness sake. What about Louis Pasteur? Y you got it, he's a Christian too. Lord Kelvin, um, hey, hey, you can turn up the heat in here, right? Uh, Christian, right? Christian. You get the idea. Virtually all the founders of the disciplines of modern science, Bible-believing Christians. And they believed that the world that they were studying was God's world. Those, those are the facts. So this idea that, you know, all oh, science and religion. No, science is originally a faith project, specifically a Christian project. 
Because we believe in an ordered world, and so we believe that you can study an ordered world, and you can have objective knowledge of the ordered world, because we believe there's an objective God who created the world. You can't, you can't do that without God. So here's the thing. As we get into the story of humanity beginning with God and a man and a woman, we mustn't let the skeptics and the critics derail our confidence in what is before us. Literally, what has, has come before us as God has disclosed to us in ancient days, which is confirmed in the modern sciences, uh, we have every reason for believing these things. So then the story in Genesis, beginning with a man and a woman in this pair, to whom God gives a promise... This is the first point on the outline as we're rehearsing this story and reflecting on its significance for this doctrine of the virgin conception. The title of today's message is Propitiation Set Up, Sacrifice Revealed. And while this message is self-contained, it is building on last week's message that was entitled The Promised Seed. And so as we get into Propitiation Set Up, I have to go back and talk a little bit about the promised seed and give a little review of the revelation of the seed that was covered last week. Now today, when I began this message, I asked you to turn to the book of Genesis. Find your way to the third chapter in the book of Genesis, specifically to verse 15. This was a significant part of our study last week, so by way of review, let's look at Genesis 3.15 again. This is a powerful verse. It's a bit enigmatic if you don't have the big story in mind, and so we'll rehearse it this morning. Genesis 3.15, God says... I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, from last week's message, you will recall, and, and this morning, if you weren't here, you could just look at the surrounding verses of the passage so you can see, the promise here is directed at humanity and the kingdom of darkness, which at this point in the story, the kingdom of darkness, had invaded God's creation and attacked humanity, specifically by calling into question the revelation of God. With dark rhetorical effectiveness and persuasiveness, the darkness asks, has God said? Should you believe that? In this case, it wasn't, you know, the modern dichotomy of, of science and faith or whatever, it was, but it was, it, it was at root the same issue. Should you really believe that? And what followed was the fall of humanity, which will be covered in the next point on the outline. But for now, I want us to focus on the point before us, the promise of the seed. Here in Genesis 3.15, God promised to overthrow the kingdom of darkness through the seed of a woman. Uh, through the historical Eve, her, or rather her seed, a deliverer would come. A moment ago, we reflected on the science of all living humans coming from a, a common matrilineal ancestor, one woman. Through her seed would come humanity, and through her seed would come promise. Concerning humanity coming through one woman, we read in the book of Acts, look at this passage, Acts 17, verse 26, you can write it down on your outline, it says this, that God has made of one blood all the peoples of the earth. And the book of Genesis gives us that account, of one blood all peoples of the earth. Now the book of Acts was written hundreds of years before the so-called scientific revolution, and after the scientific revolution in modern times, this verse was a catalyst that defied, defied, speaking of science, it defied scientific racism of its day that dominated the 1800s and the 1900s. If you don't know about scientific racism, you can Google it, but quickly, scientific racism falsely claimed in the 1800s and 1900s to have empirical evidence to support or justify racial discrimination based on the myth of biological racial hierarchy, 
which uh, the so-called white race was placed on top, as you may know. I say so-called white race because white is not a biological category. You can't look under a, mi a microscope and see, oh, he's got the white, the white DNA. Uh, white is not a biological category. And, in fact, uh, white isn't even an ethnicity. Now, to be sure, there are ethnic groups, Italians, Irish, English, uh, Welsh, and so on, but whiteness is uh, a scientific fiction of a naturalistic racism of the 1800s. Now, advocates of Darwinism in this time peddled the lie of scientific racism, and white supremacists used it to feed the eugenics campaigns of the day that actually still stand today in a rather complex web of structural racism seen in the institutional machinery of government-supported abortion, which targets and disproportionately uh, impacts the lives of minorities. Well, Acts 17.26 sounded out from the ancient world, and it's still echoing out today. That's evil. That's wrong. Your, your, your so-called science was wrong, and it still lingers among us, and we want to take captive every thought and, and tear down such wicked and evil things. We are from one blood. Now, it's, it's actually worth noting with this verse before us that to this day stands a college, Berea College. Have you heard of Berea College? It was started in 1855, and it was inspired by this Bible verse. So in 1855, an abolitionist Christian minister, John Greg Fee, who was born in 1816, he, they started this college. It was the first uh, non-segregated college in the South uh, and, and one of a handful of institutions of higher learning to admit both male and female students in, in the mid-19th century. I, I pause to mention this because, again, you know, uh, when, when I'm preaching and teaching, I want to sort of equip you to deal with criticisms and whatnot. So we looked at, you know, Adam and Eve and chromosomes and whatnot, but, but here again, when, when we talk about the topic of, of racism uh, or, or slavery, uh, critics of Christianity are quick to say, oh, didn't you Christians do that stuff? Weren't you involved in that stuff? And, and, and to be sure, you can find instances of this, and it's a tragic history that is surely to be condemned. However, the same critics failed to see that the abolitionist movement was historically led by believers along with the civil rights movement, was led by believers. If you read the great speeches and literature from these movements, you will see that the Bible was the primary source that was used to fight racial hierarchies, scientific racism, and social oppression. And in fact, when you read the primary sources of this book, it actually condemns it. So any instance that you can find in history of so-called Christians doing you know, things uh, that are bad, we just open this book and go, but, but yeah, but what they're doing wasn't Christian. Um, I understand that there are Christians who've done bad things, Christians who are hypocrites, but that doesn't, that doesn't stand to reason that the claims that are, are made aren't true. I, I had a math teacher who was a horrible hypocrite. It doesn't mean two plus two isn't four. That, that's not how reality works. Any, anyway, as I said, Acts was written hundreds of years before the scientific revolution, not to mention Genesis, which goes back thousands of years, and, and both were ahead of their time in terms of science and ethics and morality and, and human origins, explaining where we come from and how we should live. More than being a scientifically accurate account about the past or an, eth, uh, uh, an ethically relevant uh, account for social evils of the day like racism, these passages of the Bible are helping us understand a story about the fall of humanity and about God giving a promise of a seed and creating humanity from one woman, one blood, and through that blood is a promise that there is one who's going to come and be the deliverer. 
the one who comes to be the deliverer, is described in Genesis as seed. Now, in the ancient world, the image of seed was very powerful. Indeed, it is still today, uh, if we understand the sociocultural and historical context, in the ancient world, societies were horticultural. They had more of a relationship with the food they ate. You, you have likely seen uh, documentaries in our day about the devastating effects of mass food production in our world and what it does to land. Uh, maybe you've seen the vegan movements that go nuts, pun intended, because they eat nuts, um, that go nuts over the environmental damages of meat and farming or whatever. Uh, no offense to vegans in the house, whatever, because, you know, the meat eaters are going to turn around and retort with data regarding the massive environmental damages that come from vegan farming and the damage of flying avocados and dandelions and quinoa to vegan kitchens around the world. They're going to just keep fighting with this, but most of us, most of us, uh, if, if, you, if you have gardened at all, you, you realize how little you actually know. Um, we, 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 don't, we're no, we don't live in ancient days. You know, I've grown some stuff in the backyard over the years, but I've never been in a place where I had to depend on it to live. Where you're going out every day and you're looking at the seed, you're waiting for it to grow. Uh, I, I'm, I haven't lived in a context even where I could just look at seeds and tell what the different ones are. In the ancient world, you, you had to. In the, in the ancient world, you had to have a green thumb or your, fa your family's not going to make it. You have to, you, you depend on seeds. And so in the ancient world, seed, is, that's, a, that's an attention-grabbing word. You, you have to know about seeds, and you, have, you marvel at seeds, really. This, this little tiny thing, like, opens up and provides all this food to feed a whole nation and, and countries. This is incredible. Biblical scholar John Beck has a, has a wonderful entry in, uh, in, a, in a Bible dictionary on seed, and he writes this. Forgive me for the extended quote, but I, I just, it's, so good. it's so good. The seed is a marvel of nature, of vital importance to those living in Bible times. It consists of a protective shell and the plant embryo within it. The protective shell shields the embryo from harm while allowing it to be transported to a favorable growing medium. In addition, this protective jacket often houses a supply of food that keeps the embryo viable while awaiting conditions suitable for germination. Scientific inquiry has allowed us to, be better, uh, us to better understand the processes at work within the seed, but in many respects, the ability of the seed to produce a full-fledged plant remains as much a mystery for us as it was the ancients. Behind it lies the powerful hand of the Lord who designed, initiated, and now sustains this miraculous transformation that happens billions upon billions of times each year to beautify our world and provide us with food. In the Bible, the imagery of the seed is used metaphorically to speak about descendants. So here in Genesis 3, there's a promise that there's going to be a descendant, a seed, who is going to come to deliver us. In Genesis 1.1, uh, before the falls, God's creating the earth. We read about plants in Genesis, uh, excuse me, 1.11 set, it speaks about uh, the, the fruit with seed that bears it according to its kind. Uh, likewise, humans, we bear after our kind. So it's a very powerful metaphor to talk about a line or, or a descending from, you see. Carrot seeds make carrots. Humans make humans. Eve's seed is humanity, and through her descendants, promise is going to pass, carrying God's promises and covenants to fruition, just like a seed. In the right conditions, it is brought to fruition. Uh, continuing here with Dr. Beck and his entry on the seed, he writes, to speak of, of, of someone's seed 
is to speak of their descendants, their, their family line, offspring or child. In the Pentateuch, mention of a person's seed often takes on a narrower and more technical meaning. The seed of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob participated in a special covenant relationship with the Lord. Consequently, the word seed is intimately linked to the promises that Abraham's family would grow to become a great nation. He would be given a special land as their own and become a blessing to all nations. And in this way, God's entire plan to redeem the world is intimately linked to the image of the seed. Thus, the prophets would call to mind the entire set of promises linked to the covenant by using shorthand that referred to the seed of Abraham, the seed of Jacob, and the, and the seed of David. So seed is powerful. Seed is important. Seed is tied to descendants. Seed is tied to promise. Dr. Beck continues, but even before we read about these seeds of the, of the patriarchs, even before we read about the seeds of the patriarchs, and only shortly after we hear about the creation of the seed-bearing plants, we hear about another special seed. When sin entered into the world, that's where our Bibles are open, God promised that a seed of Eve would come into the world to set things right. The field of, of possible families was narrowed to the family of Abraham, and even further, when God revealed to David that it would be one of his seeds who would be that special seed, and Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, is subsequently recognized as the long-promised seed who provides salvation. All of this is highly relevant to Christmas, because in, the, in, in Christmas, the, the Christ child who comes is fulfilling the seed promise. So we need to understand the seed promise, and the seed promise as it's a part of this story of redemption. Now, last week we got into that. We looked at Genesis 3.15. This morning we're beginning by way of introduction looking at it again. Genesis 3.15, as we saw last week, scholars historically have referred to it as the proto-euangelion. Proto meaning first. Euangelion is the Greek word for, for good news or gospel. It is the first giving of the gospel. You see, the story of the gospel of Jesus didn't come with Jesus or John the Baptist. It, it didn't happen in a vacuum or fall out of the sky. It began with the very beginning. The story of Christmas does not begin in a manger with Mary. No, no, no. It starts here with Eve. It starts with Eve and Adam. It starts with the first humans. Mary is, is the mother uh, and, and, and Adam's the father. And, 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 and the, they pass on this promise uh, of the anticipation of Christmas that is to come. When, when Eve conceived, uh, you, you know, she, she's wondering, is this the one? And as her children conceived, they're wondering, is this the one? And they make genealogies that you have all through the Hebrew Bible and, and our New Testament. They're wondering, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? When, 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 Mary, when Mary conceives, she, she, she conceives... She's the one. What, what she conceives is the one. She's what we've all been waiting for all, all this time. She's the fulfillment of this. There is a miraculous asexual reproduction that brings about the literal enfleshment of the deliverer. The virgin conception is crucial to us because it ties the biblical story together. The Christ child is the promised seed of the woman who has come to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and claim a people to redeem fallen humanity. It should be no surprise or scandal for us to hear fallen humanity. As we look at the news, we see war, we see rumor of war, we look at the media, and, and we see how the media scrambles to try and make sense uh, out of how our world is so busted up. The media is just pointing fingers. It's these guys' fault. It's these guys' fault. In political culture, the left says it's the right, and the right says it's the left. In, in family culture, right, it's the dad's fault, your father, you know, no, no, it's your mom, you know, it's children versus parents. 
in urban culture, you know, it's, it's this street's fault, it's this hood's fault, it's this gang's fault. It's always someone else's fault. At the international level, it's this nation's fault. It's this nation's fault and not our own. Anecdotally, in my house, when I find something broken, which is, unfortunately, quite often, the culprit is almost always a person named not me. And I want to know who not me is. Or it was Isaiah. And you go, Isaiah, who was it? It was Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who was it? It was Obadiah. Obadiah, who was it? I don't know. Not me. Who is not me? I want to find not me. You see, our world is a mess, and we're a mess. We can't take ownership of it. We're always blaming someone else, or, or just in denial over what we have done. And this brings us to the next point on the outline, the problem, the reality of sin. Hopefully you still have Genesis in front of you. Let's look at the verses before the Proto-Evangelion comes. If we are to understand the good news of the Proto-Evangelion in 3.15, we need to understand the bad news that comes in the verses before it. Genesis chapter 3, draw your eyes at verse 8, please. They heard the sound, our parents, they, Adam and Eve. Uh, this is when they meant they, actually two people, right? So they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the God who had made, made them. And, th and this is a sad verse to read because earlier in the account, they, they're, they're naked and unashamed and they're walking with God and everything's good. And now they're hiding. Now they're hiding. And, and as I shared anecdotally about can't have anything nice in my house, that's always the case. You want to, you, you know, you want to play detective dad and find out who did it, just look for the kid who's hiding. And you say, I don't want you to hide, son, daughter. I love you. I love you. I want you to come to me when you make a mess. I want you to admit it. I want you to be reconciled. I want you to know my love. What do they do? They hide. Verse 9 says, they hear the Lord God calling, where are you? He's omnipresent and omniscient, all-knowing, everywhere. He knows where they are. Okay? And he said, I heard, you know, Adam says, I heard, I heard you, I heard you, and I was afraid when I heard you because I was naked, and so I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? You know, when you do something you're not supposed to do, you, be, you, you, you have a feeling of guilt, and you want to hide that guilt. And that, this, this here is explaining the psychology of the problem. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she, get, she, gave, me the, she gave it to me. It's she, she did it. And the Lord said to the woman, what have you done? What have you done? Verse 13, she said, well, it, you know, the ser it was the serpent. You see, it's everyone else's fault. The devil made me do it. She made me do it. Even the audacity to claim that it was God who made me do it. Aren't you the one who made all of this stuff? It's your, it's your fault, God. Oh, the pervasiveness of sin. Now, move from Genesis 3 where we see the problem. As you continue reading Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 5, you see sin, you see darkness, the first account of murder, blood's crying out from the ground. It's, re it's very dark. And you get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Please turn to Genesis 6, 5. And if you don't have this highlighted in your Bible, it, it's one of those to highlight. A sobering detail about the reality of sin, which is what we're talking about here. We, we, we have moved from the, the promise, the revelation of the sin, to look at the problem, the, 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 the revelation of the seed, excuse me, to looking at the problem, the reality of sin. Genesis 6, 5, The Lord God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This flies in the face of our culture, because fallen 
fallen culture, in particular North American culture. In our narcissistic, rugged, individualistic culture, we like to think that we're all basically good. Are they good people? And you say, but, but by whose standard? I mean, by my standard, sure, you know. Or, or people even say things like, well, you know, he's not, he's not Hitler. <laughs> you have a very low standard, you know. Uh, you know, when my daughter is of age for a man to pursue her, I say, tell me about yourself. Well, you know, I'm, I'm no Hitler. <laughs> you go, yeah, 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 I, I, yeah, no, I mean, and that's all confusing right now with Kanye and stuff, but uh, yeah, no, uh, get out of my house now. Uh, sick the dogs, right? The, the, the text says man is evil continually. The prophet Jeremiah wrote, and I quote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17.9 In theological terms, in our tradition, we use the phrase total depravity to describe our condition. That said, let me put this definition of total depravity in front of you. For sake of time, I'm not going to read this definition, but you can read it as I explain some things about depravity and the problem with sin. Please note that more than saying all humans are sinners, total depravity is revealing to us something that is much more worse. You see, not only are all sinners, but also all parts of us within and without are sinful, thoroughly so. Mind you, in saying that we are totally uh, depraved or evil continually, as Jeremiah says, uh, uh, or as, as Moses says in Genesis 6-5, Jeremiah says we're desperately wicked, the scripture is not saying that humans you know, can't be good or don't have a conscience or you know, don't do good things. I mean... Uh, you know, of course we do good things, but I mean, that's not saying much. Even, even Hitler loved his mother, but, but he, you know, not exactly contra Kanye on this, you know, uh, you know, he did horrible things. He's a bad person, okay? So the fact is, in the eyes of God, we uh, are, however, all Hitlers of sorts. We're, we're all wicked. Uh, in, in fact, the sin that pulsed through Hitler's body pulses through us. And it comes from our mother and our father, and it pulses through all of us. And it's only by the restraining power of the Holy Spirit and God's common graces that we don't act on what is within us. But what, what is within us is, to use a technical term, a hot mess. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hot mess. It's a hot mess in there. If, if, you've, if you've gone inside, you, you know. You've seen it. And if you say, no, I'm cool in there. Yeah, that's, that's showing your delusion. It's not cool in there. Uh, psychological pioneer Sigmund Freud uh, discussed the in, inside of the human as, as and I quote, hell. Uh, in his civil, Civilization and Discontents, a, a popular writing of Freud, Freud writes, men are not gentle, friendly creatures wishing for love who simply defend themselves if they are attacked, but that a powerful measure of desire for aggression has to be reckoned as part of their instinctual endowment. The result is that their neighbor is not only a possible helper or sexual object, but also a temptation to them to gratify their aggressiveness on him, to exploit his capacity for work without recompense, to use him sexually without his consent, to seize his possessions, to humiliate him, to cause him pain, to torture, and to kill him. Homo homini lupus. Man is a wolf who has the courage to dispute it in the face of all evidence in his own life and his history. In the, in the words of the great writer William Shakespeare, and I quote, what a piece of work is man. <laughs> that, that line appears in Shakespeare's Hamlet in, in a monologue with Prince Hamlet who is reflecting, at first admiring, admiringly, and, and then despairingly on the human condition. What a piece of work is man. 
Now, you know Shakespeare's plays regularly capture the, the dark side of humanity, displaying the overcoming powers of lust and greed and selfish ambition and avarice. Shakespeare and Freud saw the problem. Speaking of Freud, Dr. Armand Nicolai, a professor of psychology, uh, of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, taught a, a course on Freud for more than 35 years. He was a Freudian scholar. Uh, Freud, of course, died at the age of 83, a bitter and disillusioned and broken and twisted man. He had little compassion on the, on, the, on the common person. But Freud wrote this in 1918, and I quote, I have found that is good about human beings on the whole. I found little that is good about human beings on the whole. In my experience, most of them are trash, no matter whether they are publicly subscribed to this or that ethical doctrine or to none at all. There's trash. Humans are trash. Now, the fact that Freud is one of the most influential thinkers in our modern world is actually a testimony to the depravity of humanity. This is a man who fought to legalize cocaine, a man who is known for perverse ideologies such as the Oedipus complex, that human desire of familial perversion, a boy who represses his sexual desires for his mother and murderously uh, you know, uh, bends towards his father. It's no wonder that his own human family was broken and he died friendless, yet this is depravity. He's the father of modern psychology. What he got wrong uh, is, 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 is much, but what he gets right, I mean, look, we're, we're trash. We're desperately wicked. We have a problem in us. And that's why when we turn on the news, we see war and rumor of war. Because the problem's not out there, it's in here. Now with that in mind, it is a wondrous thing that God chose to bring the solution to sin in us, through us. The seed of the woman, it's going to come through fallen humans. The protective shell of a seed that we, you know, we talked about, that protective shell that, that watches over the embryo of the seed. God protects the promise through fallen humanity to bring about the deliverer. And he does so as part of this unfolding plan of the redemption of a sovereign. So, so we move on the outline now. We've talked about promise, the problem. Now we move into talking about providence. Long before Freud put his finger on the depravity of humans or Shakespeare, Genesis told us all about it. And without the baggage of Freud, of course, Genesis gives us a, a pure record of the impurity of the problem. Now, hopefully you still have Genesis open. And, and, and I want you to turn from where we left off in Genesis 6, describing the human condition, very Freudian terms. Move from Genesis 6 to the final chapter of Genesis. Now, as you're turning, listen... You're turning through chapters in Genesis, and you're passing by genealogies. And the genealogies are following the promised seed, because everyone's having babies and going, is this the one, is this the one, is this the one? And so when you're in the book of Genesis, you see these genealogies. Genesis 3, uh, the seed is given to Eve and Adam. In Genesis 4, there's a genealogy from Adam to Enosh. In uh, Genesis 5, the, the story covers the genealogy to Noah and his seed or his sons. In Genesis 10, we have the so-called table of nations, and that traces the, the seed of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In Genesis 11, you have the genealogy of, of Shem to Terah. Terah has three sons, Nehor, Haran, and the big dog himself, Abram, who becomes Abraham. And then in Genesis 12, the promise of the seed goes to Abram, who becomes Abraham. And the rest of Genesis is snaking around this story as Abraham's sons are getting the promise of the seed. 
And so the, the promise of the seed goes from Abram to Isaac, and then it comes to one of Isaac's sons, Jacob, and then it goes to one of his sons, Judah, through whom the seed promise will come to David, the great king, to whom the Davidic promise uh, tells us of the seed of, of Eve is going to be uh, a Jewish king who's going to come, and he's going to restore the entire planet. And the Hebrew Bible is continuing this story as it keeps moving through dark chapters and gaps of time as God disciplines His people and He brings them back to this place of hope for, for the seed. And, and so as they're, they're, they're multiplying and having children, they're going, is this the one? Is this the one? And even in those dark hours of the story, God is in control providentially with His seed. Now I ask you to turn to the end of the book of Genesis because it closes with the promised seed of Abraham to Isaac and to his son Jacob. And, then the, and as the book closes, Jacob's dead. And with the death of the patriarch, Jacob, to whom the seed promise is passed, the reader is left on the edge of his seat. What? He's dead? Uh, what, what's going on here? Meanwhile, there's a drama involving the sons of Jacob who try to kill each other. They're, they're, they're just after each other. They're covetous. They're, they have bloodthirst. And, and they, want, they want to kill Joseph specifically. They sell Joseph into slavery. And well, like I said, Jacob's dead. And now, at the end of Genesis, the brothers have to come face to face after this horrible betrayal. And, and look what Joseph says at the end. Hopefully you're at the last chapter, like I asked you to turn to. Genesis 50 Okay, draw, draw your eyes at, at the last verse. Look at Genesis chapter 50. Look at the end here, verse 19 and 20. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Even when the darkness comes, right, we see that God is not caught off guard and he's actually using the darkness to keep telling his story. God's the grand storyteller, the providential storyteller. And he's taking the story where he wants it to go. He wants to follow the seed. And, and even when humans do evil things, trying to kill your brother, sell him into slavery, through inspiration of the Spirit, we see, no, no, God's bringing about his promise. He's carrying what, 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 what you humans are doing for evil. He providentially is bringing good through it. Now, at this point with, with, with Genesis, and, and as you move through the storyline that, that I briefly sketched up, up to David, and you get to the close of the Hebrew Bible, you're just following the promise of the seed. And as you get to the end of, of, of the Hebrew Bible, it, it, it's a cliffhanger. It just, bum, 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 and you're like, whoa, what just happened? What did I just read? You know, you do the read through the Bible in a year, and you get to that point, and you're like, what did I just read? There's drama, there's darkness, there's slavery, there's adultery, there's miracles, there's wandering, there's arrival to the land, there's getting booted out of the land, there's coming back to the land. And as you get to the end you, you know, you got, you, of the story itself, you've got to run over to the Hebrew prophets because they fill in some gaps. They, they make prophecies about the seed. There's, a, there's a, a very important prophecy about the seed in the book of Isaiah that we looked at last week in chapter 7 where he, he prophesies, Isaiah does, that there's going to be a virgin who's going to bring a son and his name is going to be Emmanuel. So, so as you get to the end of the Hebrew Bible, you're like, okay, the story's still dark, but there's still prophecies of a seed coming, and specifically coming through a, a, a virgin and being God with us, Emmanuel. And, and, and the way the story un, unfolds is, is trying to show us, look, Christmas didn't just start in Bethlehem. It goes back to the beginning. 
The, the, the story of Christmas, if you, got, if you want to understand it, you have to know the story of the Scripture. The, you have to know the promise of the seed, so that when Christ shows up, you're like, he's the one, he's the one we've been waiting for. The Hebrew Bible and Christmas are telling one story, and they're fulfilling a promise by documenting the history of that. That said, without the virgin conception, the story of the First Testament would be unfinished, and frankly, it would be a major bummer. Uh, do you, for those of you who are Marvel fans, uh, for those of you who aren't, sorry if I lose you for a moment, but you remember when Avengers Affinity War came out, and you were all excited, you're like, another one of these movies, about to go watch this movie, Avengers Infinity War, and you get your popcorn, and you're like, yeah, yeah. And then you're like, oh, oh, the story's going, you're like, oh, oh, wait, they didn't get the five Infinity Stones. Oh, wait, what just happened? Like, half of the Marvel heroes just snapped into dust in front of my face. Oh my gosh, I need to go to the bathroom, but... This is horrible. i got to keep watching it. And wait, wait, Spider-Man in terror just gets turned into ashes and blows away. That's Spider-Man. I grew up like, I was like Spider-Man for Halloween a gang of times. I just watched Spider-Man die in front of my face. What is going on with this story? Thanos snaps Loki's neck. He, he slaps down the Hulk. Thanos slaps down the Hulk like Gooch did Arnold on different strokes. And, 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 and then we got to wait, uh, you know, a year for Avengers Endgame to come out, you know, and you're like, what just happened? That was, I hated that movie, and now i got to wait a year for, you know, the bummer to, you know, come back, and then, oh, Spidey's back. Sorry if you didn't know all this. So, it, you know, the story would just end with, like, the bad guys won. <laughs> like, like, without Christmas, what I want you to see is, without Christmas, the Hebrew Bible just ends with, like, yeah, the serpent won. This story is a, is a bummer. I don't think I want to watch it again. This story is a bummer. As a kid, one of the worst cliffhangers, as I recall from my childhood, was the second Star Wars movie, The Empire Strikes Back, right? And, and, and in those days, you didn't have Google, where you had, like, nerds who had speculative online, you know, here's what's going to happen, and that kind of keeps you preoccupied while you're waiting to, to hear what's going to happen in the story. If you recall, the second Star Wars movie, the hero Luke gets his hand cut off uh, after his dad mops the floor with him. Vader beats him like he stole something, gives him a $3 haircut, and busts his head down to the white meat. And then the homie Han gets frozen like a soda in the freezer and is hauled off by Boa Fett. And we got to wait three years with that. You know, <laughs> you're like, that was, that was a horrible story. It just ended, what just happened? Similarly, without Christmas, it's incomplete. It's a major bummer. Thanos and Vader win. In this case, it's the serpent, who's the ultimate Vader-Thanos you know, character. Uh, and, and you go, well, what just happened? So as you're entering into Christmas this season, take what you're learning from church and be thinking about, oh my gosh, this is a grand drama. And we're actually in it. We're in this grand drama. We're a part of it. He's brought us in it. And now, at this stage of the drama, we're waiting for the Christ to come again. And as we're waiting, we're not waiting on a Debbie Downer bummer because we, we know what's going to happen. And we know what God's doing right now as we're waiting for Him to come. Unlike the end of the Hebrew Bible, you're waiting for Him to come, waiting for Him to come, but the serpent looks like He won. 
the serpent's been disarmed now. So as we're waiting for him to come, and we go, well, are we on a cliffhanger now? No, we're not. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us that the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why are we waiting now? Why doesn't He come back now? Because He's patient. How, how many in this room got saved in the last 100 years? Uh, hopefully all you know, hands go up, right? Aren't you glad that He didn't come back in the 1800s? I'm, I'm excited that He's patient. The first advent to the second advent, yeah, yeah, we might be waiting, but we're not on a bummer cliffhanger. We know what the Lord is up to. We know our marching orders to carry the good news to the lost, to make disciples, to grow and plant churches. We are ambassadors working in the embassy of the kingdom of God, stationed here awaiting the return of the king and his kingdom to come. Earlier in the message, I quoted Acts 17, verse 26. Recall what Acts 17, 26 said. God has made of one blood all peoples of the earth. Now let me show you Acts 17 with some of the verses around it to give you a little bit more, more context here. Look at, look at the text. We, we read here that, that God is not worshipped with men, man's hands like he needed anything, but he gives life and, and breath to all things. And he has made from one blood of every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. The, the, the point before us on, on the outline is this point about providence. It's a point of providence. And, and here the text is telling us, look, God has predetermined. He's in control of it. He's working everything out. It, this, we're, we're, we're not on a, a, a downer. We're not on a cliffhanger. He's working everything out. He's in control of everything. And just as he controlled all that history to perfectly bring the seed to, to Mary, he's working out the history that we're in right now. And so, so as we look at Christmas past, we're, we're also given hope for Christmas future. And we're also given hope for Christmas today for those who are lost and they need him. And what they need what they need is to understand what he has done for them, who he is and what he has done, which brings us to the next point on the outline, propitiation, the Redeemer in skin. For this next point, let's move from Genesis to Galatians. If you would turn from the Old to the New, the First to the Second Testament, find your way to Galatians chapter 4. There are a couple of verses in, 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 in Galatians 4 that I want to show you that really transitions us from providence to propitiation. As you turn to Galatians, let me say something about the wording here on the outline. Uh, I have the Redeemer in skin. Now, mainly I have skin here because I'm wordsmithing, and I got the R's and S's going, so revelation of seed, reality of sin, redemption of the sovereign, Redeemer in skin. That said, note the parentheses, because Jesus is, is more than God in a bod. He's more than God in a skin suit. The historical Jesus isn't, isn't God in a skin suit. He's a full human. Everything that humans are, rational souls with mind, spirit, consciousness, uh, will, emotions, all that Jesus is, okay? Uh, Christmas wasn't a one-off either. Uh, Jesus, the eternal Son in the flesh, is still in the flesh, permanently so. We have to keep this in mind, the story and the storyteller, the triune God, the God who's Father, Son, and Spirit who created everything, and, and humans who rebelled against Him, as we saw in Genesis, and how He responds in love by giving a, a promise to redeem them. And, 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 and that story as it's going, and, and God's revealing Himself, He keeps showing, you need this Redeemer. You need this Redeemer. Why? Because you fall short. You're a part of the rebellion. You sin against Me. And so through Moses, God gives the law, and, 
the law comes, Ten Commandments and whatnot, right? You, you're familiar. And we look at the law and we go, oh yeah, uh, yeah, I haven't done that one, I haven't done that one, I haven't done that one. I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. I've, I've rebelled against God's law. And when you break the law, you come under the violation of the law. You come under the wrath of the law. And you cannot appeal to being good to get out of that. Any more than if a police officer pulled you over for uh, a DUI, if you said, well, your officer, think of, uh, you know, I mean, proportionately, I'm far more sober than I am drunken. I mean, think of all the hours I've logged driving without liquor in my body. No, it it doesn't work that way. You broke the law in this one instance. Now you incur the wrath of the law. And you know what we call that? Justice. So when humans shake their fist at God and they go, oh, God's so mean. Why would he punish people? What, do you want them to be unjust? You want them to be corrupt like our courts who let bad guys go and put good guys in jail? Is that what you want? Well, when you say it like that, it sounds absurd. Because it is. It really is. There is a God who is just and he punishes us. And so we stand condemned by his law. We need the virgin conception because that's going to be the propitiation that gets us out of the wrath of the law. Galatians 4.4, look at the text. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now this transitions us from providence to propitiation. See the language of providence here in the text. When the fullness of time came, God's pulling the strings on this thing. He's bringing Christmas to come. The fullness of time, Christmas will come. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, as a, as a cross-reference for us to hear, it speaks, of, it speaks of in Romans 5, 6, if the slide will change, Romans 5, 6, if I could get some help in the booth, Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Is there someone in the booth? Uh, Romans, write it down, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4, Romans 5, 6, at the right time. That's, that's providence. God, God is in control. He's in control, even though the PowerPoint is out of control. So God is in control. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It, 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 it's not a coincidence. It's concurrence. God is working all things in his providence. Now, you've got this line here, propitiation. Propitiation is a word that is used in the Bible to describe an offering that turns away a holy and righteous wrath that comes from God that is directed against sin and evildoers. A related term to propitiation is expiation, which is used to talk about how God covers sin, cleanses sin, cancels sin. Okay, so Galatians is making the case that the law, he's born under the law, and what's the thing about the law? We've broken it, so we're under the wrath of it. So look back at the text. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that what? Verse 5. He might redeem those who were under the law. Because the law condemned us. So we needed to be redeemed. Here we see the importance of the Son becoming a human. He does so to redeem us. If we could get the PowerPoint working, the next slide that I would like... Oh, there we go. There, there is a God. Uh, uh, Titus chapter 2. That was a joke. Of course there is a God. In Titus, we read about the, how the Son gave Himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify us from Himself. So, so you see, without the Son in the flesh, we would still be dirty and condemned because the law would stand against us. If the Son did not become a man, we would be condemned. We would still be under the law. There's condemnation without Christmas. Listen, only a man can be born under a law. The, the, the animals aren't born under the law. Angels aren't born under the law. God's not under the law. The law flows from Him in His perfect nature. To come under the law, you've got to come under it. Further, you have to live under it and do so purely. 
So there, there, there can be an exchange of one who is pure for those who are impure. That's what Christmas provides. In Christmas, the son becomes a human and lives under the law so that he can propitiate divine wrath and expiate our sin and redeem us. The fact that it is the Son who came and not the Father or the Spirit is significant, for through the Son we become sons and daughters of the Father by the Spirit. The same Spirit who miraculously brought the human nature of Jesus in the womb of Mary, and the same Father who sent the Son for us. Look at the passage, Galatians 4, verse 4. The fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of the woman, born of the law, that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Through the Son we become sons and daughters. Because, verse 6, Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, you are an heir through God. We have been made sons in the sons. How? The eternal Son became what we are. He took flesh, a full human nature, and He, and he came under the law, the law that we broke. He doesn't break it. Unlike our father Adam, He obeys it. Unlike our father Adam, who's blame-shifting and conniving, he, he's perfect. And then you know what he does? Scandalous. Scandalous. He dies for us. The innocent bleeds out on a rugged cross and says, Father, forgive them. That's propitiation. Look, look, look at the text, Galatians 3, verse 10. For as many are of works under the law are under a curse, as is written, cursed everyone who does not abide by all the things that are written in the book. Draw your eyes at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, a cross, wood. He was cursed for us. That's, that's propitiation. He takes the bullet that we deserved and pushes us out of the way and dies in our place. See the redemption language that is here in the text. Regarding propitiation language, in 1 John chapter 4 we read, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Son came in Christmas in love, and He died in love, and, and, and He's, he, he's going to take the wrath for someone else. That's sobering. His bloody death is, is going to be given for someone else, namely you and I who are in Him. Look at, look at Galatians 2. I want, I want you to see here the language of the seed so you see how it connects. Look at verse 14. In order that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. New covenant language here. The coming of the Spirit. Old covenant language here of Abraham. Further woven into this talk, look, look at the language of the seed. Verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his what? Seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. That is, Galatians 3.16, Christ. Paul speaks of Christ as the fulfillment of the seed promise. And then he continues talking about Abraham and promise. Look at verse 18. Uh, Galatians 3.16, Christ is the fulfillment. We go from Galatians 4, if I lost you, to Galatians 3.16. The seed is Christ. Galatians 3.18 for if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of the promise. Why the law then? Galatians 3.19, it was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come. Remember I was saying Moses and the law comes, and you look at the law and you're like, dang, I did that. Mm, 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 mm. I'm condemned by the law. Why did the, why did the law come? Because of transgressions, to show you that you need a redeemer. 
And, and, and again, look at the text. Now, verse 20, Galatians 3, a mediator is not for one party, whereas God is only one. Christ is the mediator who has come to handle the problem of our sin, to propitiate it for us. Final point on your outline, to pardon it for us. We have moved in this message to, from promise to problem, providence to propitiation, finally to pardon. In providence, God brings propitiation. Okay? But how is propitiation applied? Pardon. Uh, what is pardon? Pardon is the act of forgiving or being forgiven of an error or an offense. Pardon is a remission of the legal consequences of an offense, of a conviction. Speaking of remission, we read in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins or forgiveness of sins. As we, uh, as we wrap the sermon uh, uh, soon, we're going to come to the table and we're going to have communion. And on the table, there's a cup with juice in it and there's pieces of, of bread, of cracker, and it, it reminds us of Christmas. The bread represents Him taking a body. The cup represents blood. If you pricked baby Jesus, uh, blood would come out. Why does he have blood? Why does the eternal son have to take on blood? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Hebrews uh, talks about the blood of animals, and it talks about the old covenant and the sacrifices, and, and says that it, it is, Hebrews 10.4, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The, the, the sacrifices in the old were looking forward to the seed that would come and the seed that would die and be resurrected and then grow into a massive harvest. If you want to be pardoned, if you want to have this propitiation applied to you, you have to come to Him in repentance and acknowledge, I'm trash. I've broken your law. I haven't done right. Uh, someone was telling me that you are love and that you've provided a way out. I, I receive you. I, I ask you to come to me. That, that's salvation. It's, it's faith. It's trusting Him. It's coming to Him for remission, for forgiveness, for, for pardon. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to pay a fee. The, the good news isn't do this and you will be saved. The good news isn't do, it's done. It's done. It's done. In Christmas, the eternal Son takes on flesh. Done. In Good Friday and Easter, that flesh dies in your place. And He offers you pardon if you trust in Him. Genesis, we saw where it all began. And thereafter, we saw that humanity was cursed by, by violating God's holy law and alienated from Him. Even, even worse and more twisted, humanity joins forces with the devil and, and, and serves the kingdom of darkness. In Genesis 3, God says, I got a seed that's coming. I got a seed that's coming, y'all. And the seed is going to wage war against the kingdom of darkness. The, in the Hebrew Bible, the prophets and the, and the poets, they, they speak of the seed of the righteousness and the, and the seed of the wicked. When God restores the remnant of Israel, they're called the holy seed of Judah. 
We see the conflict between the seed of darkness and the holy seed in Jesus' teachings. In John 8.44, Jesus spoke of the children of the devil juxtaposed with the children of the promise. In Matthew 13, Jesus spoke of Himself as the one who sows good seed as opposed to the bad seed of the evil one. As well, we see in the teachings of Jesus' disciples, like John who speaks of the children of light versus the children of darkness. This raises the question, how do I go from the darkness to the light? How do I do this? You come in to Him in faith. And guess what? He's not waiting for you to believe. He has sent the Spirit to regenerate your heart that you would be born again, that you would believe. And He will empower that through the preaching of this good news. The Spirit works this. And you go from a state of unbelief to a state of belief. And it's just as much of a miracle uh, as it is a, a virgin conceiving a child. You must be born again. Look at, what, look at what Peter says, seed language and, and, and salvation language. It, it, you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but an imperishable seed, through the living and the enduring Word of God. It's through the preaching of the Word of God that God brings life by the Spirit, and, and that is seen as seed. It's seen as new, new life. Peter clearly gets this from Jesus in the Jewish Scriptures. Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again. John himself, Jesus' disciple, says no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him and he can't not go on sinning because he has been born of God. How do I go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? You must be born again. And the language of the seed is really powerful because it reminds us, just like born again language, I didn't do anything to be born. I didn't, I, I didn't hey, I want to be born. Hey. No, no, no I, I didn't have a choice in that. Likewise, with my salvation, if it was left to me, it simply would not happen. R relative to seed imagery, a field does not make a choice what it's going to grow. A big old plot of dirt isn't like, I want to be quinoa. <laughs> it doesn't make a choice. I, I would, I, we're going to do potatoes. The, the dirt doesn't decide. In John 15, 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed that you would go and bear fruit. He plants a seed in us in salvation. You want, you, you want pardon? Come to Him. Hear the good news. Surrender yourself to Him. If left to ourselves, it will not happen. Cry out to Him. He is merciful. He will pardon you. He will wash you clean. Let's come to Him now in the communion table and celebrate the cleansing He has given. Let's respond in corporate song and prayer as we wind down our service. Cry out to Him in prayer in your hearts. Come to Him. Turn from sin. Be saved by Him. Celebrate Him in the table. I'm going to pray and we'll transition into communion and corporate song. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for the hope of the seed who was to come, who has come, and is coming again. As we come to the table, we are reminded of the blood that is on our hands. But You saw fit to wash our hands clean by the blood of Your precious Son. A blood that He received through the one woman Eve through the promise, through the promise that passed to his mother Mary, made up of, of her human DNA, born into this broken world, he lived the life that we did not live. He paid the debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. Thank you, Jesus, for making that payment for us. We celebrate you in the table now, and I pray that there would be none uh, here in this room or online listening to this message 
uh, that, that, that would not respond to the gracious offer of the pardon that is provided in the promised seed who has come, the Christ child. We thank you, Lord. Receive our songs of worship, our, our offerings, and this a time of communion. In Christ's name, amen.